0: I'm Michael Rohrer. I'm an Associate Professor of Digital Innovation in the School of Health and Social Care at the University of Lincoln. In this guided reflection, I'm going to spend a few minutes talking about space, and in particular about the way that it influences learning and teaching. When I started thinking about this podcast, I had a fairly clear idea of what I thought it would be about. But as I started writing, I soon realized that most of what I had planned was based on a superficial idea of what space meant to me. As I was writing, my thoughts shifted and changed direction so a lot of this episode is new to me. To be honest, some of the ideas feel only half-formed, and I'm not even sure that I find them particularly convincing. But I can't shake the feeling that there's something here, and so I offer them to you in the hope that they spark something useful. I first started thinking about the role of space in higher education a few years ago, when I came across the idea that the configurations of space determine what we can do in them. This was in the context of online learning, but I saw that the idea applied to any space. Soon afterwards, I read a chapter called The Course as a Container. It was about distributed learning and MOOCs, which gave me a few more ideas to work with. Over time, I've tacked on other ideas and concepts, and so I thought I had a sound basis for talking about space in this episode. But recently, I've also come across different cultural and critical conceptions of space that made me wonder if it's really as simple as I'd been thinking. And that's what I wanted to explore in this episode. This was brought into focus for me in the past month or so through conversations about moving forward in our planning around hybrid and flexible learning spaces. We've had discussions about how the past few years have forced us to make fairly significant changes to how we think about and enact teaching and learning practices, especially in online spaces. But I'm not so sure that this is accurate. It's true that we've seen a grand collective experiment to move our teaching and learning online, and it's also true that we're seeing more and more experiments around blended and flexible approaches in higher education. But from my perspective, most of the conversation has been about the technical aspects of setting up online, blended, remote and in-person learning environments, without much consideration given, to how we conceptualise those spaces as active and dynamic elements of our pedagogy. I think that what we've really seen is a change in how we deliver information to students. Many teachers went from looking at rows of faces in the classroom to looking at rows of faces on a screen. They went from handing out printed documents in the classroom to emailing PDFs. We haven't used the last two years to confront issues of power, relationship and pedagogy in our learning spaces, and this is why we're doing exactly the same things now as we did 10 years ago. All that we've done is change the scenery. We might also reflect on whether online learning is simply another colonized educational space where the lines of power and control are further blurred. Lecturers' actions and choices are often curtailed by a series of decisions that were made by software designers, usually in other countries, working for companies with value systems far removed from those of most lecturers. Institutional IT policies, with the best of intentions, further restrict our practice by deciding what is and isn't possible in the online space. All of these decisions form a chain of events that constrain what is possible for lecturers and students to do together. I've often talked about the learning space as if it's a single entity we all think about in the same way. But I've realized that the phrase is really a shortcut that packages all of my assumptions, biases, and beliefs about teaching and learning into the smallest possible units of analysis. It assumes that your learning space, my learning space, and students' learning spaces are all the same. Until recently, I hadn't really understood that we all occupy different spaces even when we're in the same room or on the same page. We all see, feel, and think different things, even when we're reading the same text or listening to the same recording. And this has made me question the notion of space as a suitable metaphor for descriptions of how we think about environments that aim to facilitate learning and teaching. I'm going to spend the bulk of my time in this episode talking about learning spaces, and then end with a suggestion for an alternative way to think about how we design learning. Now might be a good time to pause the recording and think about your own ideas around the learning and teaching spaces that you occupy with your students and colleagues. How do your assumptions of time and space influence your teaching? What are all of the different spaces that you occupy in your personal, professional, and social life? What spaces do you carry around with you? When you're ready, you can press play and continue listening. I want to talk a little bit about what we mean when we say the word space. Space, formally defined, is the boundless three-dimensional extent in which objects and events have relative position and direction. Space is therefore the descriptive framework for everything that exists in our universe. Even though this isn't really what we mean when we talk about space in the context of learning and teaching, it's the same thing, just on a smaller scale. We think of space in terms of the relationships of the objects within the learning environment. Where are the desks in relation to the lectern? Where is the screen? Where am I standing in relation to the students? How does my laptop connect to the projector? In other words, we can think of the learning space as the sum of everything within our environment. From this perspective, space is inert and passive. It does nothing. It describes a container that includes objects arranged in different configurations depending on where we locate the space. Space used in this way implies the presence of boundaries. Spaces are enclosed within boundaries that demarcate this space as being different to that space. We therefore tend to use our concepts of space to bring things together, or to keep them apart, by enclosing certain ideas or activities within boundaries. How we define space determines what kinds of interactions are suitable to take place inside them, and so we should acknowledge that whoever controls the space is able to exert some level of control, either explicit or implicit, over those within the space. These different spaces therefore have different rules, social norms and contexts leading to different expectations around the kinds of behaviours and relationships that are appropriate within them. Spaces are therefore fundamentally political, with the boundaries serving as borders and frameworks, describing which behaviours and interactions are encouraged or discouraged within that space. However, not everyone can read the signs, and we need to ask ourselves if students are even aware of the boundaries enclosing certain kinds of space, and of the social and professional norms that define appropriate behaviour within it. I still remember how it felt to walk into the clinician's tea room when I was a student on placement. I had intruded into a space where I wasn't welcome. This trespass was never explicitly acknowledged or spoken about, but I never went back. How often do we stop and ask what power relations and unwritten norms are written into the built environment of our clinical and teaching spaces? We can also see the writing of power relationships onto spaces through architectural choices. I remember walking around a university in South Africa about 10 years ago, and thinking about how the architecture of the buildings seemed to project power and dominance. I was an academic at a conference among my peers, and I should have felt comfortable because this was my space. And yet I felt intimidated and out of place, again like I was trespassing. I can't imagine how I might have felt if I was a young, black South African walking into that university for the first time. Thinking about space necessarily means that we need to think about the architecture of the space. When we think in terms of learning spaces, our language changes to reflect those metaphors, and so we talk about foundations and structure and supports. In addition to these visible architectures that shape how we feel and how we behave, we also need to be aware of how spaces are shaped by the invisible forces that are exerted by organizations. For example, the institutional and professional gaze under which we work can unconsciously and subtly influence our own behavior and the behaviors of our students. What kinds of assumptions do we have about students at this institution? What kinds of behaviours are appropriate for students in this profession? Not only are all of our learning spaces shaped by this institutional gaze, it extends even further, shaping the career choices of people thinking about where to apply and what to study. It forces them to ask, Am I the kind of person who applies to study physiotherapy? Or even, Am I the kind of person who goes to university? Higher education is often thought of as a space that is open, and yet it is, by definition, exclusive. Most people won't go to university. So, while we talk about inclusive practices within the space, we should be clear that that's only applicable to those who have already made it in. How often do we think about the idea that we're working in a space that excludes almost everyone else in society? And even within that supposedly collegial space, we have boundaries that separate researchers from teachers, teachers from students administrative and support staff from faculty, and so on. Our thoughts about space as a physical location has led to our use of space as a metaphor for how we talk about learning. And lately I've been feeling like there's a hardness and inflexibility in this language. Our assumptions about what space means in the context of learning and teaching are problematic because in this context, space is what we can call a suitcase word. It carries with it a lot of baggage. When we talk about the learning space, we need to acknowledge that the word space is often doing a lot of work. Is the space in learning space physical, virtual, conceptual, social, personal? I've realized that increasingly, THE learning space is found at the overlapping intersection of all of these ideas of space. There is no single learning space, only a multitude of spaces that interact and overlap all the time. I think that this may be where some of the complexity of talking about learning comes from. Now might be a good time to pause the recording and reflect on how our ideas and metaphors of space, time and boundaries influence the spaces we occupy. How often do we think about those boundaries? What do they look like? Who puts them up? And according to what rules? Are there hard boundaries that limit movement? Porous boundaries that allow certain kinds of movement? Or conceptual boundaries that encourage or constrain the movement of certain ideas? Who exerts power and control over those spaces? Is it really you? Should it be you? And if not you, who else? Who should make the ultimate decisions about what we can do in our learning spaces? When you're ready, unpause the recording and keep listening. In the past, most people, most of the time, thought of a learning space in binary terms. You were either on campus or you were somewhere else. You were present in the classroom or not. Over the last 10 years or so, we've added another way to think about space. You could be either online or offline. It was also binary. Either or. I think that this might be because of how we think about space in the context of our bodies. You can only occupy one space at a time in the real world. But our metaphorical use of the word space means that we can occupy multiple spaces at once. I think that this introduces some ambiguity into our language around learning spaces, an ambiguity that isn't always acknowledged. It used to be that online was the shorthand we used to describe doing an activity on the web that is an activity we completed in the browser on a laptop. But nowadays, this distinction of where an activity takes place is more nebulous. Our phones are online all the time, but aren't always using the connection for anything. Some apps cache information locally on the device, meaning that we can use them when we're offline, but then share information back to the company's home service when we reconnect. Devices that were never online are now online sometimes, for example, our watches and earphones. We're no longer in a binary state of online or offline, and nowadays we actually pay very little attention to whether or not the activity we're engaged with is in one state or the other. We only really notice it when the activity we're trying to do requires a connection and there isn't one. Similarly, the distinction between formal and informal learning spaces is problematic. If you reflect on those terms for a moment, you'll probably also find that a few other associations have been pulled into your consciousness. Did you associate formal learning with structured, controlled, timetabled, and in some cases, dull and boring contexts? Did it include the one-way transmission of factual information from teacher to learner? Did you think of informal learning spaces as being less stressful, more playful, and enjoyable? Was the phrase informal learning linked to social and personalized approaches? When we talk about spaces for learning, we often need to make assumptions about the kinds of activities that are performed in those spaces, because they're often left unsaid. Another binary concept is that of flexible learning spaces. Most of us now have to say that we offer flexible learning, because the alternative is that they're inflexible, and no one's allowed to say that. But what does it even mean to say that our learning spaces are flexible? What exactly are the flexible parts? Is it the timetable? The curriculum? The assessment tasks? The format of delivery? I think most of us would agree that these remain mostly inflexible for most of the time. I don't think that we have a good idea of what we mean when we say that our learning spaces are flexible. I think most people would probably say that flexibility in this context means that we provide opportunities for students to study when it suits them. And by this, we probably mean that we've recorded lectures. I think that this impoverished view of flexibility arises from our thinking about learning as something that takes place in a place. When we talk about learning as a process that takes place within a space, The teachers, institutions, software developers and companies are forced to make a series of choices about what learning should look like. We've convinced ourselves that changing learning processes is simply a matter of changing the scenery. When our thinking about learning design is guided by language that encourages us to make binary choices, then a student-centered learning space might be seen as informal, online and flexible – all of which includes a host of further assumptions. It's hard to talk about learning spaces that are both online-offline, or formal-informal, or flexible-inflexible, but the reality is that our spaces are all of these things at the same time. I want to suggest that these binary spaces are not only false dichotomies, but they don't exist in any meaningful way. When I look closely, I find it more and more difficult to pin down activities as occupying discrete positions in space. We now find ourselves in hybrid spaces, where we simultaneously occupy physical spaces while time-shifting our interactions in digital spaces. And it's not always clear to me where we are, or even when we are. You may want to pause for a moment to reflect on the binary learning spaces I've provided here as examples, and to think about other spaces that we traditionally think of as learning or not learning spaces. What are your own assumptions about what constitutes formal or informal learning environments? Do they have real differences, or are the differences mainly cosmetic? What about flexible learning spaces? Where does the flexibility lie? Can spaces really overlap? Or are we just context switching? When you're ready, press play and continue listening. I'm going to talk briefly about the idea of third spaces. Third space theory is a relatively new way of thinking about issues of identity, community, and location, and it may provide a useful lens with which we can think about the relationships that are enacted in the learning spaces we share with others. I can't claim to have a great understanding of the theory, but parts of it resonate with me, and some of the ways I've been thinking about space in higher education, and so I thought I would try to use it as a way to better understand learning spaces. The traditional first space is your home, and work is the second space. But for many, home is now also a primary workplace, creating a third space that is both home and work. This blurring of the lines between home and work has been further complicated by the overlapping of the physical and online. In third space theory, our physical reality is sometimes thought of as the first space and online as the second space. But we increasingly talk about being either connected or disconnected, moving us from talking about being in a place versus being in a state. Virtual reality is another third space where we are embodied in digital forms and are therefore occupying both physical and digital spaces that may or may not be online. If I'm sitting in my lounge at home or in a coffee shop or park meeting with remote colleagues for work, Where am I? Whose rules of conduct apply? Dress codes, break times, and the presence of family and pets are all norms that are being subverted in different ways through our occupation of this third space. If you've ever been in a meeting wearing a shirt with buttons and pyjama pants, you've been part of this process. As a footnote, the Wikipedia entry for pyjamas now references it as a type of clothing for performing remote work at home. A clinical environment can be seen by students as a learning space, maybe even the only learning space that really matters. But a patient almost certainly doesn't see it as a learning space in the same way, and an educator is trying to balance these competing tensions by straddling both spaces. In community-based settings, students, educators, clinicians, family members, and service users may all occupy the same space, but they may have different, possibly even competing ideas about what really matters in that space. Who truly belongs in these spaces? whose rules and norms apply? Can students interrupt a clinical encounter to ask a question of the educator, and how might that change the therapeutic relationship between student and patient? Another third space to consider are what can be called founder spaces, the empty classrooms, catering venues, and hallways that are taken over for alternative purposes by both students and staff. These spaces differ from those informal spaces that have been formally designated as learning spaces, in that the use of the space is subverted and taken over for some other purpose. Found spaces may be an attempt to overcome what has been called architectural determinism, where institutions use the built environment to try and control where and when learning takes place. From a student's perspective, could it be that most spaces on campus make them feel like trespassers, or that they're out of place? And to turn this idea around, what would it look like if we encouraged this sense of trespass or transgression among students? What might spaces of higher education look like when they are taken over by students? On the one hand, it signifies a sense of belonging, and maybe even shared ownership of the space. But on the other, it takes control of those spaces away from teachers and administrators. These hybrid third spaces challenge us to reconsider what it means to be anywhere. A learning space can be online, in person, or a blend of the two. When I'm sitting in a classroom while working on a shared document with someone in another city, where am I? In a sense, I'm in the classroom, I'm on the document, and I'm on the screen in front of my colleague. My actions are constrained by the norms and rules of the classroom where my physical body is. My actions on the document are constrained by the software designers, and my actions on the screen of my colleague are constrained by the field of view of my camera. There's a lot going on here, most of which is abstracted away when we collapse all of that context into the phrase, the learning space. Pause the recording and reflect on the idea that the clinical space, like the other spaces discussed in this episode, consists of an overlapping and integrated model of all spaces. We need to acknowledge this when we bring along our assumptions about what rules and norms apply, what behaviours and expectations are appropriate, and how we communicate these ideas to each other and to our students. I think it may also be reasonable to ask what other ways this idea of third spaces could subvert the social and professional norms of higher and professional education. When you're ready, unpause the recording and continue with the episode. I want to talk about some of the ideas that I've had around configuring space. The shape of a space determines what you can do in it. Think of the features of the built environment that either serve to promote movement or to close it down. Ramps for students and staff with disabilities and clear signage for those with visual impairments are obvious examples of how movement is constrained by the default settings. And while these are obviously important settings, there's still only a small part of how power and relationships are shaped by space. The default configurations of a learning space either serve to constrain what we can do, or facilitate a flourishing of thinking and reflection. While we may agree on certain optimal configurations of objects in a room that are arranged to facilitate learning, we may not agree on the optimal configurations of the relationships we have with those objects and with each other. We don't have good intuitions for shaping spaces in ways that shape relationships, And this may be because we tend to think of space as passive and inert containers of the objects we use for learning. The Japanese have a concept of space as a framework that describes and prepares us for the relationships that unfold within it. They think of space as a dynamic and active medium that shapes our behaviors, our thinking, and our politics. This concept of space is entangled with the activities taking place within it, and is therefore imbued with a meaning that changes depending on the context for which the space is going to be used. The first type of space they talk about is relational space. Every space influences the types of relationships that are formed there. This is why teaching outside under a tree feels so different to when we try and do the same thing in a cramped seminar room. The space is different, which makes our relationships with others different. The second kind of space is knowledge mobilizing space, which focuses on the arrangement of elements to create connections that are more likely to produce new knowledge or experiences. While relational space focuses on relationships and social and personal harmony, knowledge-mobilizing space is concerned with how knowledge is formed and shared. Trying to create an informal learning space on campus is an example of this kind of space. The third type of space is locational space, but it means more than the physical presence of a place on a map. In Japan, the idea of a place is indistinguishable from the historical, cultural, and social connections within it. Being a part of a place means being in dynamic relationship with it, In Japan, a building can't be in Tokyo without Tokyo also being in the building. The fourth kind of space is often translated as negative space, but is better understood as a free zone that allows for dissimilar things to coexist. The idea is that we need to create interruptions, absences or pauses that allow for these differences to be reconciled. Designing for these spaces is about creating moments of awareness and quiet reflection. Some of these ideas about how we arrange space and the objects within them allow us to think of space as an extension and expression of culture and values, rather than as an empty place where culture happens. But when we think about configuring space, and where we have the authority and skills to actually do so, we still think of this in terms of changing the scenery. We change how things look and feel. But I think we can go further by changing the metaphors we use for learning, and that's what I'm going to talk about next. Take a moment to pause and reflect on some of the ideas I've shared in this section. What are the default settings in your own teaching that have limited something you wanted to do? Were you able to change those settings? And if so, do this change the dynamics of the space? How much agency do we give to students to move in, inhabit, and reconfigure the institutional and curricular spaces that we've created? Do we even allow them to change the space? When you're ready, press play and continue listening. I should state up front that I'm not even sure that what I'm going to talk about in this last section is different to what I've been talking about so far. In other words, I don't know if this is all just semantics and if I'm just playing around with what words mean. But anyway, here we go. I think that we talk about the learning space because we think of learning as taking place somewhere. And this makes sense because until recently we could only be in one place at one time. Learning could only happen in the places we occupied with our bodies. But this has changed as we've moved more and more of our learning into third spaces, and I'm no longer sure that spaces are useful metaphors for our descriptions of how to think about learning. As an example, think about the way that the positions of walls in a house means that you can only move through the house in certain ways. You might move the walls or take them away completely, and that will change the way the space is configured. But there are still walls. The metaphor of space means that walls, corridors, windows, and doors of your curriculum can be changed to reflect different rules, norms, and expectations, but they still enforce predetermined pathways and destinations. Learning spaces conjure up the idea of containers, which encourages a focus on things to put into those containers. When you think about learning as happening within a space, you immediately start thinking about the things you need to put into the space. Every learning environment has a set of social, cultural, political, and economic influences that are exerted on the space, And trying to draw a bright line between different types of learning spaces misses the point, I think. All spaces have the same problems. We don't need to change the aesthetic arrangements of objects within spaces in order to enhance learning. We need to look for different ways of thinking about the relationships that unfold within those spaces, and whether or not those relationships lead to more meaningful learning interactions. It's the process of learning we should care about, and spatial metaphors with their emphasis on place make it hard to conceptualize the process. So, instead of thinking about learning design in terms of where it happens, I started to wonder what it might look like if we talk about learning in terms of how it happens. Instead of talking about learning as something that happens somewhere, some place, what if we talked instead about some how? And if we're going to talk about the how of learning, what kinds of how? What kinds of activities might help us to think differently about learning design? I started to wonder about using the idea of recreation as a guiding metaphor to think about learning. Recreational activities can be fun, playful and engaging while also being mentally and physically challenging. They can be laid back or intense. Recreation is what we do with discretionary time and is therefore something we choose to do on our own terms. There is no busy work in recreation, there's nothing pointless in it. Everything we do in our recreational time is a free choice. Recreation is influenced to some extent by the scenery but is not defined by it. Recreation is deeply personal. You can do it with or without equipment, with or without other people. Recreational activities allow for tinkering on the margins. They are open-ended activities that need not have defined objectives. When there are aims, they are personal goals that are different to instrumental outcomes. We don't go on a hike to conquer the mountain or to cover all of the mountains. There is no predetermined sequence in which to enjoy the experience of walking. Time passes differently when we're engaged in recreational activities. Recreational activities allow for and encourage interaction between those with differences in experience and expertise. Recreational activities can include elements of serious play, where serious play refers to an array of playful inquiry and innovation methods that serve as vehicles for complex problem solving. There is a hacker ethos in certain forms of recreation, where our ability to subvert and surprise is celebrated. When a friend shows you a new skateboarding trick that you spend hours copying, no one worries about plagiarism. Recreational spaces can still have rules and policies, social norms, and behavioral expectations. But instead of boundaries like walls, doors, and windows that limit how we can move and we can see, we might think about a network of public footpaths protected by legal rights of access and rights of way. Instead of feeling like trespassers in other people's space, could we open up our learning so that anyone could move freely through it, like hikers moving across public land? What are the teaching activities that come to mind when you think about learning as climbing? or as running, or painting, or stargazing, or building with Lego. Instead of thinking of informal learning, or online learning, or clinical learning, where we try to arrange spaces to enhance learning, what if we thought of learning as camping? Imagine a campsite with 20 different groups of campers, all with different equipment, different values and beliefs, different backgrounds, different schedules, and different goals. Some are there for the walking, some for the fishing, some for the socializing, and some for simply doing nothing. Some will want to do all of these things, but at different times. Some approach their camping with the focus of accountants and plan for months. Others throw an armful of gear into the boots of their car on their way out the door and trust that everything will be okay. At the end of the week, everyone has had a different experience with different levels of satisfaction, but it's all the same campground. Would we design differently if we thought about learning experiences as campgrounds, or routes on bouldering problems, or triathlons, or as birdwatching clubs? Take a moment to pause the recording and think about this idea of using recreational metaphors to talk about learning. Instead of using spatial metaphors to describe different relationships between objects, could we use recreation as a metaphor to describe the types of activities we can do with students? What problems can you see with this idea? Where and how would it fail? If you don't think that recreation might be a suitable metaphor for learning, can you think of something else? When you're ready, press play for the last section of the episode. In conclusion, I've come to the realization that there is no such thing as the learning space. Learning happens in the mind of the student and only in the mind of the student. From this point of view, everything we do with the scenery is incidental. Whether it's online, face-to-face, formal, informal, in the classroom or clinical context, learning happens in the mind of the student. When we think about learning as something that happens in a place, we may inadvertently be spending too much time worrying on what the space looks like. Moving the learning environment from a space that we control and literally placing it inside the skulls of students necessitates a giving up of power and control that's hard to do when we think about designing learning spaces or building learning environments. Learning is complex and we should look beyond architecture and location as the primary means by which we think about it. When we take seriously the idea that space teaches, we recognize that our language around spatial configuration imposes a kind of pedagogy that includes some of our values and beliefs around what teaching and learning should be. But no one can say what camping or climbing or running or fishing should be. They mean different things to different people. Instead of thinking of walls and doors and screens as our means of accessing learning spaces, what if we thought instead about the mental activities that promote the kinds of pedagogical relationships we value? I've come up with recreation as a metaphor for learning that might help us to deepen relationships, generate new knowledge, connect to the world around us, and create moments of quiet reflection that enrich our experience of the world and that of those around us. But I could be wrong. I haven't subjected this idea to any rigorous critique. I haven't even checked to see if it stands up to the same objections I raised for the idea of space as a metaphor. I have no idea if this stands up to any kind of scrutiny, but I'm putting it out there nonetheless. I don't know if recreational metaphors are the right metaphors to design radically different learning experiences, but I do believe that new metaphors for learning and teaching are needed. You may not agree with my suggestion of recreation as a metaphor for learning, and if you don't, that's great. Share your ideas with others, and maybe we can find another way to think about learning that helps us facilitate the kinds of learning and teaching that cultivate a sense of belonging, feelings of safety, of being valued, of being seen and heard, and of being cared for. Thank you for listening.